Welcome to Sustain What, a series of conversations seeking solutions where complexity and consequence collide. That's basically on just about every sustainability frontier, from shaping a safer relationship with Earth's climate to building more civil online relationships with each other. As we say here in the Communication Initiative of the Columbia Climate School, the word sustainability has no meaning on its own. The first step towards success is to ask, sustain what, how, and for whom? This program contains audio highlights from hundreds of video webcasts, which you can explore on your own at j.mp slash sustainwhatlive. I'm Dale Willman, Associate Director of Columbia's Initiative on Communication and Sustainability. The webcast was created and is hosted most of the time by Andy Revkin, the longtime environmental journalist, sometime songwriter, and founding director of the initiative. Read his related dispatches at revkin.bulletin.com. And now, sustain what? Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, depending on where you are on this fast-forward planet, which is full of stresses and turbulence and polarization and confusion and makes us really focus on the now. The now being what's on your doom scroll feed or on the latest newscast and or in your life where you're locked down or your kids are freaking out and you're freaking out about sending them back to school or you're thinking about climate change and we've just had a we're in the middle of a very super active hurricane season. It's very hard to pull back take a pause. So I'm trying with this conversation today to do that. I'm Andy Revkin. I'm at Columbia University's Earth Institute, just about six months into the pandemic and six months into a webcast I started March 15th uh, to explore these tough questions we are confronted with right now. Um, I've got some uh, good friends and a new friend to, to meet with today. And the thing that stimulated me to have the session was a book called The Good Ancestor by Roman, uh, Roman, I had, I Roman, I practiced this and I was totally, and it, I know it's intuitive and I'm screwing it up. It's Roman Krisnarik. You just say every Krisnarik. Yeah. What an idiot I am. Uh, uh, it's great to have you here from the UK. And today we're also going to meet with another old, old friend, friend of mine. Of mine. And here's, and here's John, John Sutter, Sutter who, who is, is in, in Brooklyn. Brooklyn? No, no, I'm in Salt, Salt Lake City, City now, now, actually. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. There, there, wow, it's wow, even it's worse. Even worse. That, is really that is really weird because it was, it was working, working fine, fine a minute ago. Hey, For what hey, it's worth, I don't hear John's echo. I hear my own. Well, I'll, I'll ask, ask if you're, if you're out, out there listening, listening and you hear an echo, put in a comment right now in your video box, in the comment box. And we'll, we'll see what, see the, what the, the, most the most important, important people, people in the conversation, conversation are, hearing. are hearing. That's, That's people, the people out, there out there in the world. The world. Um, um, I'm, I'm going to click back, back to something, something, else, something else here so, so we, we can start, start to talk about the Roman's, Roman's book. book. So Roman, so Roman the, the, the good ancestor, ancestor is a phrase that has been around a little while. Sorry, scurrying backwards. Tell us Tell a little us bit about your conception of it. Your, and, and what does what it mean to be a public, public philosopher? philosopher? I, made I made up the title up public philosopher, philosopher um, partly because I'm not an academic philosopher. philosopher. In fact, my, my background's in political, political science, science, but I'm, I'm in, in the, the great, great interested in the philosophical, philosophical questions of how to live. 
but not how to live as an individual only, but how do we live as a society, as a collective? And for me, that's what public philosophy is. And I got really engaged with the, the concept of being a good ancestor when I saw the famous question that the immunologist Jonas Salk first asked in 1977, which was, um, are we being good ancestors? He believed that was the great question for our century. And for him, it was at least partly about how do we extend our time horizons from seconds and minutes and hours to decades, centuries, and even millennia. So for me, that question of being a good ancestor is very much about being able to look at the past in order to look to the future, to look at the positive legacies that we've inherited. For example, the gift of me medical discoveries of the agricultural revolution or of the cities we still live in, but to also look at the negative legacies we've inherited, the legacies of slavery and colonialism and racism, which have become embedded in public institutions and think about, well, what kind of legacy were we going to leave for future generations? And how do we overcome other legacies like the legacies of a fossil fuel addicted economy and a growth addicted economy? And so we can have a, a longer term future for people and planet. And Andy, you're on mute. And how do people fit that into a daily life? Well, that's the great question, really. How do you make a connection between the here and now of looking at your phone and pressing the buy now button and that larger scope of thinking on the scale of hundreds or thousands of years? On one level, of course, as individuals, we can start trying to connect with larger conceptions of time. So just last week, I was with my children on a beach on the south coast of England. We were looking for fossils and we were holding in our hands a 195 million year old belemite, a kind of squid-like creature. And, you know, for a lot of people, including me and my kids, that gives you a sense of awe and wonder and puts you in part of that great cosmic time story of which humankind is just an eye blink. But I think one of the, the secrets to long-term thinking, actually, which I've discovered over the last few years of writing this book, The Good Ancestor, is to not simply focus on lengthening time, but on the idea of regenerating place. And the great biomimicry designer, Janine Benyas, you know, asked this question, how do we think on the scale of you know, thousands of generations ahead? And she said, well, learn from nature, right? Learn from the 3.8 billion years of evolution. How is it that other species have learned to survive for 10,000 generations or more? And her answer is this. The answer is they take care of the place that will take care of their offspring. In other words, we must learn to live within the ecological limits of the one and only planet we know that sustains life. We must learn to not foul the nest, which, of course, is what humans have been doing with devastating effects at an ever increasing pace and scale over the last century. So what she's really telling us is to fall in love with mountains and with rivers, with ice sheets and with savannas and reconnect with the long and life giving cycles of nature. And of course, this is something we find in a lot of indigenous culture. You know, for example, there's the beautiful Mohawk blessing spoken when a child is born. Thank you, Earth. You know the way. And I think in that is a long-term vision based on place, not time. That's a fantastic way to articulate it. Um, and that does lead to actual steps you can take and thinking on how, how do you relate to a landscape. That also reminds me 
of uh, Ian McHarg. And I think he was involved at an early stage with some of the language around good ancestorship. He was a landscape designer at uh, Penn. Uh, he recently contributed to a book uh, on his legacy that he talked about, don't even think about designing a city or any community without starting to understand these full landscapes of history, geological, hydrological, biological. And then you can start to talk about human. It has that same characteristic. Um, and I think that's valuable. So Bina, uh, I'm going to mute myself after I introduce the next question, just to be sure we don't echo more. Uh, Bina, it's Venkataraman? Venkatraman. Venkatraman. So you were an advisor, you were involved at the White House in between being at the New York Times and uh, being a journalist elsewhere. And now in your job, uh, managing opinion for the Boston Globe. So you were advising a pretty inf influential institution on issues related to adaptation and resilience. And, when, and now you, you came out with a book about these concepts as well. I'll show it in a second. But what's, um, what, what do you think when you hear that, that articulation of it? Well, Roman and I have been in touch loosely because I think we're uh, hovering around similar uh, ways of thinking and ideas. And in, in my book, The Optimist Telescope, which was really inspired by trying to work on climate change in the White House and finding uh, a frustrating pattern, of, <laughs> thanks Roman, of, of people uh, not being able to think ahead despite their best aspirations, their sort of value, inherent value that human beings place on future generations, which you can find in the founding doctrines of most democracies and the public trust doctrine. You can find it in the writings of Edmund Burke, the Irish political philosopher who was the godfather of conservatism. But the, the gap between aspiration and action on behalf of future generations, action on climate change, was really apparent to me in that work in the White House, trying to work with companies and communities to get them to prepare for heat waves or floods or droughts. Uh, so that kind of led me to the Optimist Telescope. And uh, this idea of being a good ancestor is very central to the book as well. Um, and the way I think about it is sort of both being a descendant and an ancestor to position ourselves uh, in this way where we see ourselves as a stitch in the long fabric of time. And uh, I love the anecdote about the fossil uh, found on the beach uh, with your kids, Roman. Uh, in, my, in my book, I write about uh, the moment in which I inherited an instrument from my great-grandfather. It was an instrument handmade for him. He was a music and art critic in South India, and the instrument's called a dilruba. And when I got this instrument from this man I'd never known who was my ancestor, I suddenly felt this obligation or this new awareness uh, at a fairly early stage of my life in my mid-30s of not just being a descendant receiving the gift, but also an ancestor responsible for stewarding that object through time. And for me, that becomes a more practical way actually to orient long-term thinking or thinking around generations and how do we do right by future generations? Because as Alvin Toffler pointed out in 1969, 1970, when he wrote Future Shock, it's very difficult for us. The rate of change is so rapid and that's only become more so um, since he wrote the book. Uh, it's, it's become so difficult for us at, with so much technological change, with so much societal change, to actually imagine what the next generation's lifestyles will look like, what they'll want, what they'll do, how, they'll, how, how their societies or cities will look. And so the concept of the heirloom for me became a metaphor for thinking about how do we do right by future generations in a very practical way. So 
I talk about leaving shared heirlooms and the sort of preeminent example of that in our society here in the United States are our national parks. So if you think about the national park system, there is a legal framework that protects it as a shared heirloom. There are financial resources. It's funded by the government uh, across, you know, since it, the parks were established over generations. But really importantly, there is meaning and there is practice and there is use of this heirloom by each generation. It's not a time capsule that we bury thinking that we know what people a thousand years from now are going to want or, or do. It sort of accounts for this idea of, of, of humility and of the lack of ability to predict the future and of future shock. But in the process of having each generation have an interaction with those parks, each generation creates its own meaning and can, can use them in different ways, in fact. And that, I think, is an important thing that we have to do for more of our natural resources, uh, to think about our clean water, our clean air, our, our forests, things that have been important to our ancestors that we just know are inherently important to human beings that increase our quality of life, great works of art and to protect them like shared heirlooms with this kind of governance, with the resources that are needed to protect them and with the meaning that each generation can have and interact with them rather than putting them you know, behind um, you know, a steel case. That's such a That's great, such a great uh, uh, conception. There's some aspect of it though that leads me back to what Roman said in the initial um, comment he made about other than specific particulars like a park, when we get to the scale of the climate or um, the nature of a country, it feels like some questions start to percolate upward, which are about what gives us the right to constrain what we think the future should be like. In other words, if you should we be liberating the future always, we don't want to constrain future options, but if we lock in, let's say, no nuclear in terms of climate change or uh, there are many different scales of that kind of question, but how much of what we are doing now in the context of how we solve a problem is not adequately liberating the future to be what it wants to be? Roman, maybe I don't know if that is explored in your book, which I've only read in passing so far. And then we'll get to John. Yeah, certainly that question for me raises uh, a way that I look at the problem of the future, our relationship to it, I believe we've colonized the future, that we treat it like a distant colonial outpost where we can freely dump ecological damage and technological risk as if there was nobody there. And it's a bit like the way when Britain colonized Australia in the 18th and 19th century, they drew on a legal doctrine now known as terra nullius, nobody's land. They treated it as if there were no indigenous people there, of course there were. And I think we've now got a doctrine of tempus nullius. We see the future as nobody's time, a similarly uninhabited territory that is ours for the taking. And the tragedy is, of course, is that future generations aren't here to challenge this pillaging of their inheritance. You know, they can't leap in front of the king's horse like a suffragette or block an Alabama bridge like a civil rights protester or go on a salt march to defy their colonial oppressors like Mahatma Gandhi. They're granted no political rights or representation, they have no influence in the marketplace. So what that's telling us in general is that we are fundamentally limiting the choices of future generations by the actions that we take. Um, for example, by bequeathing them a fossil fuel addicted economy. But I think it's really important to remember that there are many, many futures. And 
you know, some people might, a, a, a corporation might say that they are long-term thinking. A former head of Goldman Sachs, Gus Levy, once said, we're greedy, but long-term greedy, not short-term greedy. Well, that's one way of thinking long-term, but it's one very narrow perspective on the future. And one of the things I love about participatory democracy and deliberative mechanisms, particularly citizens' assemblies, is they're very good at recognizing many, many different futures, the different things that people, people care about. They might, some people are gonna deeply care about racial injustice being passed on from generation to generation. Others are thinking about the climate. Others are thinking about the problems of artificial intelligence and lethal autonomous weapons. Others are thinking about mental health issues and how those are being embedded in institutions. So, you know, I really love a, Japanese model of local democratic decision-making called future design. And this is a model where they invite citizens to make up, uh, to decide plans for the towns and cities where they live. And half the group that are invited are told their, president, their residents from the present day. The other half are given these ceremonial robes to wear and told to imagine themselves as residents from the year 2060. Well, it turns out the residents from 2060 systematically advocate far more transformative city plans from healthcare investment to climate change action. And this future design movement is spreading across Japan, even used in big cities like Kyoto. So these are the kinds of mechanisms I think we could be adopting around the world to introduce a sort of a more deliberative revitalization of democracy and help us see the, the many futures that may be coming our way. Oh my God, that what you just said about that Japanese uh, practice, think about that as a learning opportunity for students anywhere um, who are screen bound, screen bound right now or not, where I've done scenario exercises in classrooms related to the climate treaty and the like, but that particular one dividing, having students adopt the role of the future feels incredibly promising. I don't know if that's already we should talk to Kate about the donut economics syllabus. Is there a syllabus for this yet? Or can well, you? Actually, actually, the Future Design Movement in Japan have just uh, started up their first website. It's only in Japanese, but they're creating a methodology um, which will be available in English soon, which can be downloaded so that anybody will be able to try and uh, put future design into practice in the town or the city where they are. I think, I really believe it has huge potential to um, spread and scale up and spread out this grassroots revitalization of democracy, which not only draws on the very positive grassroots democracy, which is emerging because of COVID, people setting up their own WhatsApp groups on their streets and things like that, but also taps into a longer term imaginative vision, which is something that Bean has written about a lot in her book about the importance of the imagination, trying to empathize with future generations you know, cross those barriers of decades and then make that do work in public policy. Wow. So, Bina, I, you have to go soon, I know. So I want to make sure you get in a little time and then bring in John. Sorry. I certainly want to hear from John, too. I was just going to react to what Roman said, because I think what's so exciting about the future design movement in Japan is that it does respond to what behavioral science and really consistent historical example shows us is often missing, 
when we try to make decisions on behalf of our own selves in the future, whether that's planning for disasters like hurricanes or really some of this more sort of intergenerational thinking around climate change and, for that matter, um, nuclear waste. And that is that there is an imagination gap. So everything that we experience in the present, everything that's immediate, we're constantly being reinforced to value, whether it's because of stakeholders like lobbying groups that are there present in the political process or whether it's through the ways we measure what success and progress look like through quarterly profits or um, GDP. And so that sort of immediate set of concerns is constantly being imagined and for that matter, not even imagined, but viscerally reinforced, sensorily re reinforced. And so to actually be able to, um, I consider it to be, I think of it as imaginative empathy, as some behavioral economists call it perspective taking, but, but it, it requires us to uh, use these ex kinds of exercises where we actually have to inhabit, uh, whether it's through virtual reality exercises that allow us to empathize with, uh, with what it's like to swim in a dead coral reef or writing letters to our future selves. There's an effort called Dear Tomorrow launched by a couple of uh, uh, climate policy experts uh, on that front. Uh, or some of these collaborative efforts that really are, you know, they have a model, a predecessor sort of in Pentagon war games, role play games, where people actually have to take on the mantle or in fact the robe of the future person and be a voice for that person. Uh, and, and so I would just say that there's, there's a lot of science behind why these kinds of experiments might actually show a, a bit more promise in helping us empathize with the future. I can tell you right now that I'm going to do a follow-up session where we dig in on this. Uh, we can really talk about some of these specific examples. And Roman, maybe I can, uh, if we do the right time zone, I could get someone in who's uh, leading that movement in uh, in Japan. Uh, the, the scenario, I, I, it was, well, it was in 2007 when Dot Earth was just starting. I did a, an interview with um, a law professor, Raffensper Carolyn Raffensperger, at uh, she was at Vermont Law School, I think, at the time, on d the question, does the future need a legal guardian? And that's just one other approach that's within the law. And but I think this idea of at least normalizing for a community, having that capacity to take a landscape, whether it's a firescape like California, whether it's a coastal community, whether it's a community that's got deeply embedded racism and wants to craft pathways forward. There's clearly a to do list here. It's not just, you know, blathering. And that's what I really like about in the, in the first 20 minutes here, we've already articulated some concrete things to do. Uh, uh, John, can we bring you forward now? And I want to show um, a little bit of your um, film. I'm going to have the sound silent. So you could just, this is from your TED talk recently, your TEDx talk. Uh, so, so John, I want to just, just say first though, yeah. I first learned of this guy when in 2015, he was running around doing a two degrees reports for CNN opinion, looking at this question of two degrees ahead of the Paris talks. And uh, he went to Woodward County, Oklahoma, and did what I consider one of the most single most valuable video interviews ever with, with people in the quote unquote, most skeptical county in America on global warming. And here was a guy who was a creationist oil company worker, who was getting off the grid. <laughs> Because for reasons, the same reasons he would never vote for a Hillary Clinton or, or, or anyone like that. And your work has that open inquiry aspect that's great. So what led you from that kind of reporting and to this project now? And just describe it briefly. So you're, you're, you're going to have a long haul ahead of you. Tell, tell people about that. 
<laughs> yeah, I'll um, I'll tell you about the projects. And then I want to yeah. weigh in on some of the topics that have been discussed because I think this is just like a fascinating, uh, you know, an important conversation. So, yeah, I um that that project in in Woodward. I mean, I, I'm from Oklahoma. I'm from a very conservative place. I, I know a lot of people who don't accept the reality of of climate science, and so that project. Um, I think partly it's where I'm from that, that led to that that openness about it. But yeah, you, I, what I found there was there's a lot more overlap uh, than people get credit for. And, and, I, and I don't think that, um, and you're right, there, there's this guy in, in Woodward, Oklahoma, who, uh, you know, is investing in his own personal solar system while also denying the reality of climate science and, and is a, you know, a full force creationist. So there's, there's, people are complicated, <laughs> I guess. A lot of my work points to that. Um, and so I, you know, I went all over the world for CNN. I was, I was there for about 10 years, um, mostly reporting on environmental issues and the climate crisis. And uh, I started to think that the point in time way that I was telling the story, which was from you know, one place, one disaster, one happening usually that would that would take me, um, you know, somewhere that 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 was missing, like that the full magnitude of what's happening here, right? Like, climate change is fundamentally about change over time. So if we if we approach it only as news people tend to approach stories, which is only in one moment um, or one window, it doesn't really add up to the magnitude of of what's going on. And I started reading about, you know, there are a number of academic theories around this. Um, One's called shifting baseline syndrome, um, which comes from fishery science and the work of Daniel Pauly. Uh, th there's a, um, a colleague of his uh, who collected images from one fishing dock in Key West, Florida over a number of decades, um, looking at like the trophy catch in this one place. Uh, and you see from like the I 1950s well. to now, uh, you know, the fish are like as tall as people at the beginning. And then they're like, you know, these tiny little fish. Uh, uh, by the early 2000s and the reactions of the fishermen are like the same in all the photos. They're smiling the whole time. They don't realize the magnitude of the change that's happened because of, you know, regulatory changes, overfishing, a, a bunch of different reasons in that case. Um, another researcher, Peter Kahn, calls this generational amnesia. It's basically the idea that environmental change is happening slowly enough that it doesn't trigger are like alarm bells and, and sort of make us notice uh, what's happening. And I think that, you know, sometimes I get pushed back on this idea and people say, well, we are alarmed by the fires in California. We are alarmed by hurricane season. Uh, we notice what's what's going on and that climate change is being seen here and now. And I think that that's true in some respects, but I, I do see from within the media, especially like a normalization of that. Like I think the storms have to keep getting bigger. The fires have to be bigger to get the same level of attention um, that they did. And I, I think that we sort of shift what we consider normal um, forward through time. So th this project that I'm working on now is trying to use, you know, documentary to address that. And, and basically it's, it's called Baseline um, and it's following four communities that are on the front lines of climate change uh, in installments between now and the year 2050. Um, and so it's trying to show what is true but isn't often reflected in the way that we tell this story, um, which is that it's playing out across generational lines um, and in ways that we don't always take notice of in, in our kind of like tweet to tweet, minute to minute um, way that we tend to con conceive of stories these days, especially. And this gets back to a couple of things that were just described earlier. Uh, Roman, particularly in talking about um, time, time constraints, we 
the whole everything around us, our our politics, our media, are set up to go in the other direction, to go to the now. Everything about once we're done with this webcast in a half hour, and Bina, when you have to leave, just let me know. Um, we'll be back into that flow of Trump and this and that, and how then you build a sort of pathway toward creating decision spaces like those that Bina and and uh, Roman were describing seems incredibly important. But it, it's again, it's even hard to tell the story of that. There are people trying. Uh, the I think Solutions Journalism Network is doing a good job of trying to play with different story approaches, even different ways of interviewing somebody. So you're not just getting the soundbite for the moment. So your interview is actually digging in on what someone believes and why they believe it, and not just looking for the gotcha quote. That these are all shifts in practice and, and awareness that are going to take some time. Uh, Bina, before you go, you want to have a quick uh, reaction and thought on next steps? I just think that's very profound what John's working on and he for him to actually be able to be in a very uh, minute to minute uh, news environment and to take the approach of stepping back and saying we're not actually telling the story in these increments is something that I just feel very strongly about as a journalist that it's really our role to do that, right? It's not just our role to break the news, to cover the president's next tweet, uh, though in a moment I'm going to have to leave to, to get right back into the political news cycle that we're in um, leading up to this election. But I just think it's a very profound thing for, for us in the media to take responsibility for, uh, to sort of help people make these perceptual shifts. So I'm um, eager to keep tracking the project and hopefully we'll live long enough to see it seen its full culmination. And um, I'm sorry to have to leave this conversation because it's so wonderful, but I, I do need to go back to the short-term uh, pressure cooker. Uh, thank you so much, Bina, for being with us today. And what might be fun to experiment with is to brainstorm with you or your staff about doing something for Globe Opinion that captures some of these questions, but in, this, in a way that conveys that. We can talk about that. I love that idea. Thank you so much to you all. This was really fun. Take care. Thanks, Andy. Thank you, Bina. Bye. Thanks, Bina. I'm sorry we were having audio issues earlier. There was something about Bina's connection, I think, that might be um, part of that challenge. But uh, are you all hearing okay? And I was getting some feedback in the comments that I think we're good now. We were good when we were muting and stuff. But I don't want to impede the the back and forth thing. So John, uh, do you have some questions for uh, for Roman in the context of what you're trying to do with this film? Well, I was just thinking a lot about places as both of you were talking. And I think that there's a way in which there are certain communities, uh, especially people who live in one place throughout their lives. And, and Baseline features a number of places where there's kind of one of the criteria as we're considering like what communities are we gonna follow was like a unique tradition of of memory. Um, so in the the village in Alaska that was being um, shown a minute ago, uh, there, there's and in many parts of the Arctic actually, there's a, a naming tradition that is is kind of unique. Where when someone dies in the village, the traditional practice is to name the next person who's born um, after the person who passed away, and it's seen as like almost a form of reincarnation. People talk about you know that child exhibiting the traits of the person who they're they're named for and, and so there's this way in which story crosses generational lines um, and observations about 
shifts in the environment like those cross generation generational lines um too but I, my my question i guess is about the jump from from that kind of thinking which i do think is in jeopardy in our hyper fast uh you know environment these days and because people move so often which makes it harder to like have a continuous observation of like what's really going on um but you could also think is like the atmosphere think of the atmosphere as a place right and the atmosphere is a shared like legal trust um and so i'm curious about like ways and i'm thinking about this too like how do we get that transfer from thinking about a national park along generational lines or a community uh, you know across generational lines which i think is already kind of a trick and a little a little like you know cuts against the grain of the way we typically think um but then to effectively counter the climate crisis i think we have to start thinking about the entire ocean that way the entire atmosphere that way and i'm just curious about how you see that leap yeah it's really fascinating to try and think about what happens when a society isn't embedded with a strong sense of home and place, is it possible to create a new culture of long-term thinking to um, change what I think of as the ethnosphere, the swirl of ideas and assumptions that create our worldviews? How do you do that? Um, I, th I think one needs to always take multiple approaches to this stuff. Humans are very different and respond to different things. So. I deeply believe in the importance of cultural and arts projects like yours, I think are really fundamental for putting new kinds of concepts of time and place into our minds. So another one I find very inspiring is an art project from the Scottish artist, Katie Patterson called Future Library. And this is a 100 year art project where every year for 100 years, starting in 2014, a famous writer is donating a book which will remain hidden, unread in the future library until the year 2114, when the 100 books will be planted on paper made from a thousand trees that have been planted in a forest outside Oslo, especially for this purpose. The first person to give a book was Margaret Atwood. Uh, others include the Turkish uh, writer Elif Shafak. So Margaret Atwood's given a novel that she will never see published in her lifetime. It's a and never meet the readers. It's a kind of gift to the future. So I think we need to learn from that. I also think we can look directly at other cultures and try and absorb their learning. So I love that idea of the names being passed on that you mentioned, John, and it makes me think in, in um, Aotearoa, New Zealand, the Maori concept of wakapapa, uh, wakapapa spelt with a W-H, wakapapa is that word for lineage or genealogy. And it's the idea that we are all connected in a great chain of life stretching far into the past and long into the future. And it so happens that the light is shining on us here and now. And what we need to do is broaden that light. So we recognize that here in the room with me are the living and the unborn and the dead. But then how do we really connect with that, particularly in a hyper-individualistic consumer culture where we're constantly told to look after number one and the advertising industry is telling us we're forever young. Um, I think what's really interesting about, for example, that future design movement I mentioned in Japan is that they are directly inspired by the Native American idea of seventh generation decision making, you know, putting our, our focus seven generations ahead. And so there is a, an indigenous worldview coming into public policy. I think that's really extraordinary. 
But you also mentioned law, which I think is also fundamental here. In the United States, for example, there's a very important organization you probably know about called Our Children's Trust, which is um, has taken the US government to court on behalf of 21 young people campaigning for the legal right to a safe climate and healthy atmosphere for both current and future generations. And as you're saying, Andy, you know, back in 2007, you were on this topic of the legal aspects of thinking about future generations. And in this case, it's trying to give rights to people who aren't even, won't be alive for decades, perhaps. Right. That is probably the most important shift in human rights since the French Revolution. And then alongside that, yeah. uh, and I'll just say this one final point is, in terms of law, there are really important movements to give legal personhood to the living world. So again, in Aotearoa, New Zealand, the Wanganui River, sacred to Maori peoples, has been given legal personhood, like we give legal personhood to corporations, or the Ganges and Yamuna rivers in India. So I never thought I would look to the law so much to embed long-term thinking in uh, today's culture, but I'm finding myself um, being very excited by a lot of these shifts in the legal world, combining with some of these cultural things like John and others are doing. Yeah, I think in, there was a case that was similar to the one that was brought in the U.S., right? The, in the Netherlands, I believe that, that they were successful in, in moving policy based on some of those those concepts. I, I find that very inspiring. I mean, the U.S. case hasn't um, moved along as quickly as, as, as some would have hoped. But I... Um, I think that concept of like there are legal rights of the natural world or future people have legal rights. I mean, I I'm very inspired by um, you mentioned the the beliefs of a few indigenous communities of those concepts of time and place also. Um, and I think if we can kind of mainstream some of those ideas into our legal systems, maybe that would help us make decisions based on these concepts as opposed to, you know, thinking about them. Although I think, you know, as a, a filmmaker journalist, I think that conceiving of this stuff is kind of the the start of it. And, um, you know, my project and and others are, I think, just trying to like sort of push people to, to think about time in a new way, which is that the future is something that we're all living into and, you know, and, our, and young people are especially living into, you know, baseline, the first installment features a bunch of young people for the reason of, you know, you can anticipate a, a little bit like what, you know, sorts of challenges they might face moving forward. Th there's another project that I was going to mention that's by the uh, of the philosopher and artist, um, uh, Jonathan Keats. He, he has a, a, I think he calls it the Millennium Camera. Um, it's right. basically this pretty like rudimentary is the wrong word, but it's, it's kind of a, a simple setup that aims to take kind of like a thousand year exposure of a few landmarks. I know there's one in Ta Lake Tahoe. Um, in California, but I, I've talked to him about this and, and really he sees it as a, you know, a, a way to prod now thinking like the, the, uh, as young people engage with the idea of a thousand year image, it makes you think about, okay, what does the world look like a, a thousand years from now? And think about the fact that, you know, that, that carbon sticks around in our earth systems for about that long and, you know, and contributes to warming. So it, it in a way, we're alive in that future because of the pollution that we're putting into the atmosphere now. Um, and I think that kind of like mind bending of it sounds a little strange, but like it, it I think that that kind of conversation and thinking is needed as a way uh, to get into the, you know, the legal, the business world um, and, and to make some big changes.
There's one other element I want to bring in, which is, uh, I, sorry, I kind of posted it prematurely, but one thing that I think could be valuable path forward is to recognize when aspects of debates we're having now are about the future and are about how we value it. And they don't get into the public discourse. The social cost of carbon is 90% about the future. Those determinations that are built into that number, which started during the Obama administration, and it relates to all the uh, UN negotiations over climate, who's obliged to do what. When you actually look carefully at calculating a social cost of carbon, it's implicitly a moral question about how much we in America setting our price of carbon at $40 a ton or whatever, how much of that is about future costs to people in 2100 in Bangladesh. And the country has to make a decision. If we're going to set that, we have to be honest about that. And actually, the National Academies, uh, I wrote about this uh, several years ago for ProPublica, they said one of the best things to do to advance um, social cost of carbon calculations to make them um, uh, digestible is to create that anatomy, make that anatomy more clear. These are the components of that cost that are about the future. And then we're actually telling the story for what it needs to be. And when you do that, you can have a discussion that involves libertarians and liberals. Like here was Bob Murphy, who's a, a you know, he's at an organization that's basically a lobby for fossil fuels. And he said, the social cost of carbon is not a fact about the universe akin to the charge of an electron. It's an amorphous concept which can be given an enormous range depending on very controversial modeling decisions. What he's actually saying is it's a values judgment. And it is. And here's David Roberts, like one of the most progressive climate energy bloggers, said uh, too often, uh, he said, social and ethical disputes are being waged under the cover of math. I love when he said that. So we have to be honest. If you start to get honest about things, then and clear, we're actually, we're actually doing this. In other words, it's part of what we're just debating. We just don't even realize it's within the debate sometimes. I don't know, Roman, if that has come up for yeah. you. Absolutely, that's come up for me because this is all about discount rates, right. um, which is an economic methodology, which looks like a rational form of decision-making, but it's actually a deep form of intergenerational injustice. And as many people listening probably know that the way discounting works is a bit like, when the further away somebody is from you, the smaller and smaller they get. Well, when governments make decisions about long-term investment, the further and further people are in the future, the less their welfare is taken into account. And economists have been selling the idea of discounting since it was kind of invented in 1928 by a mathematical economist called Frank Ramsey. But even he said, do not discount the welfare of future generations. Doing so is a failure of the imagination. You know, he said that nearly a hundred years ago, and yet we are still doing it. And what it means is that governments particularly often don't make long-term investments in, for example, a renewable energy project that might have benefits accruing 50 or 60 years into the future because they discount those benefits. They're not included in the calculations. It links directly to calculating the, the social costs of carbon and so on over the long term. So I recently did a briefing about my new book for British members of parliament and I had to think about, OK, how do I talk to politicians on both the left and on the right um, to try and get them to think longer term? And I kind of went through a dual approach. Partly, I talked about the legacies that we're going to leave for future generations, trying to connect with them emotionally 
just making them in fact realize some of the numbers to connect emotionally that look there are 7.7 .7 billion people alive today they are far outweighed by the nearly 100 billion people who have lived and died over the past 50,000 years <laughs> but both of these are vastly outweighed by the nearly 7 trillion people who will be born over the next 50,000 years assuming current birth rates stabilize even in the next two centuries tens of billions of people will be born and I was saying to the members of parliament, look, amongst those tens of billions are all your grandchildren and their grandchildren and the friends and communities on whom they'll depend. So what legacy do you want to leave for them? So telling them that. But then I was also saying, look, if there's one thing you can really change is the way discount rates work. You can change the numbers um, because the way economists think about discount rates is that we can give less value to the interests of the future in these calculations because they'll have economic growth more money in their pockets to deal with the problems they face or more technologies but no amount of money in your pocket is going to reverse the melting of the greenland ice sheet you know we should not be discounting things which have to do with severe chronic ecological risk so andy i think you're absolutely right that to bring in this kind of economic calculus is a really important part of the discussion but it is one that is happening across many countries already. So you're talking about this. This is helping because it's kind of crystallizing what kinds of features of the Earth or human systems um, would merit this approach. Earlier, Bina brought up parks, national parks, where you have a landscape that's implicitly got a long biological history. It's rainforests or it's a waterfall that looks beautiful. There's sort of an objective value to preserve preservation. And then there's capacities or processes like the erosion of the Greenland ice sheet, which is already essentially feel much science says it's unstoppable. There are things we can do to slow it, et cetera. Um, that would be another characteristic. So, so some, something in, the, in a natural process or a dynamic of the earth that uh, would be something you could then identify as having that prop property. But then there are these other, they, then it gets back to this, um, the constraints, you know, there is this ultimate, um, as you said, you don't want to constrain the future's capacity to be what it wants to be as well. And, you know, that's where the, the limited government folks kind of zoom in and say, you're presume, you're, we can't presume too much or we're being hubristic about hmm. making our impression on the world today. It, so it's, it's the inverse of uh, taking into consideration the future. It's also sort of saying, who gives us the right to say what the sea level should be in 2300 if it requires deep and harmful disinvestment right now in, in energy access? Like, that's an interesting question. Um, or not. I didn't, that, that may come I, up, John, in your reporting, I think, depending on your... What are the four places again? I think it, I think that is an interesting question. Yeah, it's it's kind of organized by by season. So yeah, there's a community in Alaska that's spring around the time of the sea ice breakup um there's a uh, like a heat and drought and fire story that's the summer and it's in the american west um the uh fall is about uh storm and hurricane season which we're you know in the peak of right now and then uh an island in the pacific is the is uh the winter story which seems maybe a little strange but their highest tide events uh are in the winter months so um yeah, I, uh, I mean, as, as you're both talking, I, I was thinking about, you're right, people can argue d different things about what is good for future generations. I think that, that there, is, there can be real debate there. But I guess I'm most troubled by efforts to completely 
in a in an economic sense and in others like the, to to discount them or to to just sort of delete that from our conversation and in thinking about like activist circles i think that this happens in climate activism too um i i think there's a lot of intense pressure to frame climate change as like an immediate now disaster story like we are seeing droughts and wildfires and hurricanes and and i agree with that like if if people in the news are not saying what we know about the connections between climate and wildfires. They're reporting on this. That's negligent. The same about hurricanes. Like we know that we're altering the probabilities of these events and changing them in, in more and more tangible ways, especially with like climate attribution science. Right. So it is a now story. Um, but I think sometimes along with that is a pressure not to talk about the future because it's the assumption is that that doesn't land as urgent. It doesn't land as emotional um, or important to people. And I think the challenge in, in storytelling and art is how do we shift that so that you can, uh, you know, through some of the exercises you all are talking about, that's a good way to do it, to write letters to the future, to imagine the future, to make decisions as if you were someone from the future. Um, but creating that empathy and like kind of emotional intensity around the future, I think is really central if we're going to solve some of these big, big problems. It's like both can be true, right? Like it is an urgent now problem. And also if you're not thinking about the future, you're missing the huge magnitude of it and, and the ramifications of all the decisions that we make now that are quite lasting, you know? Um, and then I also think there's this pressure not to, make all of this sound paralyzing and sometimes by talking about the future right. and the the true the predictions get scarier and scarier the further out you go uh, roman i loved your image of the the people that are like sort of smaller in the yeah. distance and how we how do we like enlarge them <laughs> and bring them up close um but that's a scary prospect and it, it's it's hard to wrestle with those truths um uh, but again i don't think that means that we can just ignore it and just focus only on like the right now one question that came up here, and actually it involved Roman's uh, spouse, Kate Rayworth, uh, in a conversation with Herman Daly, two great economists, two different generations. And we were talking about how do you avoid the almost reflexive and natural and, and objectively correct view when you're in a calamity like we've been in and are still, pandemic and an associated crash of the economy that we knew. We all know we want to build forward an economy that doesn't have the same brittle characteristics that supports the caregivers who are un, under under supported. We've had three or four sessions like that on here, especially that one was fantastic. So circling back to my original questions about how do we normalize or create the capacity to broaden the timescale just when we need it. I, I think, uh, Roman, you said in a tweet this morning, there's an urgent need to do this even as we're talking about long time scales. So right now, here we are in the United States, we're facing this epic kind of disruption in politics like you had with Brexit uh, and are still having, and we're having it with the Trump era. And we have a pandemic and we have deep uncertainty about how to carry that forward. And we have an economy that's still gonna be unraveling for a long time to come as it re-ravels. So what's the best advice for getting an urgent attention on this in the context of rapid change and, and where we're at now. Okay, let me give you probably the answer you don't want to hear. I want to give a very <laughs> non-urgent answer because I think there's something we haven't been 
talking about, which I think is very, very fundamental, which is our conception of human nature, of who we are as people. Now, we know that over the last 30 years, there's been a very big shift in uh, economics and other fields, um, evolution and biology, telling us that we're not just self-interested creatures. We're also cooperative and empathic and so on, that we're much more complex. We're me and we're we. And this has been really important in fostering all sorts of transformative movements, circular economy movements, peer-to-peer, -peer, all that kind of stuff, cooperatives. But I think also when it comes to thinking about time, we need to think of think about that it's not just that we're both me and we, but we're also short-term thinkers and long-term thinkers. We need to think of ourselves as a species, not just as a totally addicted to our phones, that we're only driven by the short-term part of our brain. I actually have a name for it. I call it the marshmallow brain. Okay, it's the part of our brain which focuses on immediate rewards, instant gratification. That's all about pressing the buy now button. Um, but we always feel a struggle, don't we, between what I think of as the marshmallow brain, another part of our brain, the acorn brain. You know, do we party today or save for our pension for tomorrow? Do we upgrade to the latest iPhone or plant a seed in the ground for posterity? We've also got this other bit of our brain here in the frontal lobe, particularly a part called the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, give its name. And this is the bit that focuses on long-term thinking and planning. And we're actually really good at this, right? So a chimpanzee plans ahead a bit. So they'll get a stick, strip off the leaves and turn it into a tool to poke into a termite hole. But they'll never make a dozen of these tools and set them aside for next week, right? But that is what a human being does, right? We are planners extraordinaire. That's how we built the Great Wall of China. That's why we write song lists for our own funerals. That's how we voyaged into space. So I think a message for this time, the very urgency of this moment, as you say, Andy, is to know that we have capacity to think long. Don't think that we are just wired for short-termism. We just need the institutional changes that bring out that long-term part, just like my kids really need to be in a school that doesn't just bring out the egoistic competitive side, but brings out the cooperative side. We need a politics, an economy, legal structures, culture that brings out the long view. And that's what a lot of my work is about. And I think that's what people like Bina are doing. I think, John, I think your work fits into this. I think we're all in different ways, time rebels. We are creating in a fragmented way as much as possible, a movement for long-term thinking and intergenerational justice. It doesn't really have a name yet. I call them time rebels, but hey, I hope that's an okay term. I, I like and, that. And, <laughs> New Twitter bio. <laughs> you know, there is this other element. The element I deal with is um, connected. the connectedness part. You mentioned uh, the we and the me. Uh, the work of Dan Siegel, a psychiatrist at UCLA, I've, I've met him many times at the Garrison Institute, and his he um, has this conception of the mind as extending well beyond the skull. And he, he's, he's a very much a biological psychiatrist, you know, he, but he's also developed this concept of the mind. He, he says, we all have a we map and a me map. And there, that's a frangible, that's a plastic um, uh, set of attributes. You're not born with your we map. You can, part of your mind is essentially uh, your conscious connections to a wider world. And, and I love this because, you know, we all talk about the downside of the internet and Zoom and screens, but there is huge capacity, I think, untapped yet to use these tools in a way that helps to build that, that we map. It's going to be huge work because 
the folks who designed everything we're talking through have designed it for uh, compartmentalization, for, for amplifying difference, for tribalization, for all these features that we know are in play in overdrive right now. But with work, you can build that so that the empathy you're talking about, at least in temporal, uh, you're meaning on the landscape of humans alive today, we can have a much broader remap. And then extending that forward in time, I think can be there through this role playing and some of the scenarios you're describing and the films like John is bravely going to be, is engaged in doing. Uh, that means that funders of things should be thinking differently if your goal is sustainability. It's so much of what we think about is a good story as opposed to a good capacity. And this goes for how we teach and everything too. So I'm I'm still excited mostly. I feel, you know, I have a daily cycle, but tonight I'm sure I'll be wiped out. But I don't know, I don't know if you, Roman, um, my sense is you and certainly uh, Kate as well are generally in the upside excited mode of dealing with this landscape of possibilities, even though you know it's hard. And John, obviously, any journalist now struggling to maintain a livelihood, let alone be creative, is so uber constrained. Um, I'm glad to see you've been able to build your landscape so far of making this project go forward and hoping you can uh, keep going at it again. So, but uh, let's start with Roman. Are you, if you could characterize your mental state as you look at our moment and and the content of your book, and it's great to hear that it's some parliamentarians are reading it. Uh, what, which which side of that spectrum are you mostly on? And then John. I'm not an optimist by nature. Uh, because I think of optimism as a kind of glass half full, um, thinking positively, even in spite of the evidence kind of attitude. So I'm not an optimist, but I'm a believer in hope. And I think hope as opposed to optimism is a more radical concept. It's about recognizing the scale of the challenge, but continuing with it, even if the odds aren't great, because you believe in it. You believe in certain values, ideals and goals. And that's how I see it. I absolutely see the challenge being monumental. How do you overcome the myopia, myopia of representative democracy, the myopia of consumer culture? These are huge transitions that we need to embark on. But what ultimately really gives me hope is something I read in a brilliant academic treatise called Energy and the English Industrial Revolution by a very famous economic historian called Tony Wrigley. It's quite a tough academic book. But in that book, I read these few sentences which blew my mind. And what he was, what he showed the evidence for was that the political economist Adam Smith in the 18th century didn't even realize there was an industrial revolution going on when he was right in the middle of it, right? He couldn't see it. It was too fragmented. It was going on in different places, in different ways at different times. So my hope is that we are in the middle of a kind of regenerative long-term transition now. It doesn't always look like it when we see the domination of the big oil companies and tech companies and so on. But if you put all the pieces together, we may well look back at this moment as part of a regenerative, uh, long mind, long now kind of revolution. Not definitely, but certainly possibly. So hope, but not optimism. And John? I mean, I'm 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 with you on that, Roman. And I um, I think you know, journalists by nature are observers, and we look at you know sort of the cold hard reality of things. And so I, I wouldn't 
necessarily describe myself as an optimist either, but I, I will say that hearing about our acorn brain and the capa our capacity that isn't exercised in our institutions, but that is part of us, uh, you know, to plan for the future and to care about future generations and to think in that way, I think that that gives me a lot of hope. Um, and I, I think that knowing that and emphasizing that and sort of giving ourselves permission to see ourselves in that way and to see our society in that way is incredibly hopeful because we're, you know, bombarded with messages of the opposite, that we're only, you know, short-term thinkers, that our, our democracies and markets and everything are just like now and that's it. Um, and they do function in that way and that is a problem, but that doesn't mean that humans are, our nature is that. And so I, I love, uh, you know, that example because I, I think it does give me hope that we are able to stretch our thinking. And I think that it's true that when we see time expanded in a different way, it is very interesting to us. Like, I mean, Baseline is is uh, based on a, a documentary series called, um, the first installment was called Seven Up um, by Michael Apted. And he followed these kids in the UK over the course of their lives from age seven uh, in the 1960s, early 1960s. He was in his early 20s when he started that project until the most recent installment just came out last year and it's called 63 Up, so the subjects are now 63. Um, he is himself in his 70s. Um, and I, I met with him and talked with him about that before, like when I was sort of germinating this idea for, for, for Baseline. And people who are familiar with that series find it incredibly emotional to watch a human you know, life unfold on, on film in that way. And so I think that we're drawn to themes of intergenerational change and kind of the magnitude of a life and how our stories carry on beyond you know, this time that we're here. Um, and it's on us as, as storytellers, I think, to, to sort of put that in the forefront of the way that we're talking about all these important issues. So I, I'm more hopeful after this call than I was before, for sure. <laughs> oh, that's good. Well, uh, we're kind of at the end of our hour. Um, I want to, hold on one second. There's something I'd like to read at the end, just to sort of thank those who make this possible. I had to find it. Um, I hope you'll agree that this is, feels like the beginning of a conversation. Uh, you know, again, I said we've had several here, two with Herman Daly, the, one of the founders of ecological economics, one with Kate, and one with some postdocs who were fixated on that conversation. Then they came on and did their own session on how do you build uh, economics that uh, values uh, the things that can get us a future that will be happy with, <laughs> at least in theory. Um, so there's, there's much more to do here, including on visualizations and, um, and the uh, journalism and creativity and the arts side of this. So thank you. And also to Bina Venkataraman for being here uh, today, Roman and John Sutter. Uh, Sustain What is a global online conversation identifying solutions to the complicated shape-shifting and epic challenges of humanity's great acceleration and now the great pause that's been enforced on us by a virus. A prime focus is making sense of and getting the most out of the planet's fast-forward information environment. It's the one Earth system changing faster than the actual environment. I'm convinced that it can give us a bigger we map to go with our me map. Stay tuned. This webcast is produced as part of my work building Columbia University's new Earth Institute initiative on communication and sustainability, basically waking up trying to make information matter a little more each day and connectivity. 
As soon as we're done, share the link you've been watching on with friends and circles far and wide. This gets archived immediately as a video. Get in touch with your ideas. Look at the scrolling bar at the bottom to f see ways to get in touch with me and connect with each other safely from a distance where necessary. And um, you can actually hug people where that's possible on the world, where countries that have taken this virus seriously. And I hope to see you both here again soon. So thank you. And all of the listeners today who've, who've been part of the conversation as well. So thank you. Thank you for listening to Sustain What? A production of the Initiative on Communication and Sustainability at Columbia University's Climate School. If you like, send your feedback or ideas for future shows to j.mp slash sustainwhatfeedback. Thanks again for listening. Stay safe and build a better world. Mm -hmm.